Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Roll up, roll up. G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1398 entitled I Was Made For It. Our podcast title is M. Podden. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Another Disney Plus (laughs) episode, I'm afraid. Well, I don't know. I'm not afraid of the mouse, but it just worked out that way because we are going to talk about, Mm -hmm. we'll call it newish. 2021. Yeah, newish. 2021. Yeah, in pandemic terms, it's like just yesterday. And that's Nightmare Alley, a neo-noir Guillermo del Toro monster piece of a film, mm. which totally tanked at the box office. Yeah, so it's a bit of a funny one, isn't it? Because I think it got a bit lost. Oh, yeah, I laughed a lot. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> it got a bit lost amongst things being pulled because of the pandemic, and obviously it did have a cinema release, but it, it really didn't get much uptake with audiences, and I think they didn't push it as much as they could have in the cinema either, unfortunately. It did come out last year. As you mentioned, it had two cinema releases. They also did it in black and white. They did. So they did do a version in black and white called Nightmare Alley Vision in Darkness and Light. And I think it would lend itself very well to that because, as you mentioned, Rob, it's a neo noir psychological thriller directed by the one and only Guillermo del Toro. And it was also penned by him in conjunction with Kim Morgan. And so, you know, with him at the helm, it does incorporate some horror elements that he likes to lean into. He's done a bit of horror in his past, but no supernatural themes for this one, which is another one of his key themes that we've seen in works past. So I guess, should we just dig in briefly? Because he's done a lot of great zero G fodder into some of our past Del Toro loves. So I think most recently people would be familiar with The Shape of Water, so that won the Oscar as well. The story of a love, pure love between woman and man, question mark. Um, And also prior to that, did the wonderful Crimson Peak. Did you see that one, Rob? Absolutely. Love that. It was such a good kind of a gothic horror, that one. And it had uh, Tom Hiddleston in it, as well as Jessica Chastain and Mia Vasikovska. Highly recommend that one if you haven't seen it. And then he did also take on the giant mech, what would you call mecha? Monsters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With Pacific Rim, which is a bit of a left turn for him. And then, of course, the one that I probably know him for the most is Pan's Labyrinth. Ah, yes, that wonderful children's tale. Yes, a very whimsical fairy tale. Uh, no, no, just joking. It's quite horrific. <laughs> Fantastic film, though. And then, of course, he's done Hellboy and Hellboy 2, and he did a Blade, Blade 2. And uh, early on kicked off things with Mimic, which I've not seen. That's pretty old. Have you seen Mimic? Oh, yes. It is a brilliant horror film. 
Unless you're not into bugs. <laughs> I am not. So maybe I'll keep myself away from that one. But yeah, he's also done it quite a bit on TV. So he did The Strain, which I know we covered. And you liked that one, didn't you, Rob? The vampire. I did. Yeah, because he wrote the novels for that beforehand. Mm. So yeah, they're actually quite good. The one I actually remember f- seeing first of his mm. was... Kronos. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, which had Ron Perlman. Ah, Another key collaborator. Uh, He's got a few. He's a bit of a a director who likes to bring on. He has some key collaborators that he works with again and again, and that includes actors as well as members of the crew. I'm looking forward to his take on Pinocchio, which is a film he's working on, an upcoming feature, and he's got Cabinet of Curiosities on Netflix too. I saw a poster for Pinocchio. I don't know if this was a genuine poster or whether it was a meme one that someone had doctored. Okay. But knowing that it's Del Toro, I could go either way. It's got a silhouette of Pinocchio walking through a landscape, and the caption is, all he wants is human flesh. Oh, I kind of hope it's real. I kind of hope it's real. Wouldn't put it past him, actually, to do such a take and would watch, would watch. So, yes, Del Toro, he's had a lot of hits, a lot of zero-G faves on that list. And so the latest, Nightmare Alley, that we checked out, it's available on Disney+. And you can also rent it on Apple TV as well and in various different rental streaming too. But it is available if you are a Disney Plus subscriber. It is based on the 1946 novel by William Lindsay Gresham, and that book and generally the film itself is about kind of the underworld of sleazy grifters and hustlers that work in the underground of carnivals, travelling carnivals and the like. And there was an adaptation of the book in 1947, so pretty soon after the book was released, there's a film already been released, and this incarnation that del toro has done is rather than being a remake of that it's his own adaptation of the book and taking his own spin on things as well and as you mentioned there's the black and white version which is also available and it did get lost at the cinema but it was nominated for four oscars including best picture so i think it was quite critically well received as is a lot of his work but didn't really strike any interest with audiences unfortunately so Before we dig into the details and the cast, generally what we're looking at for this film, set during 1939, as mentioned in the carnival world, and we've got the manipulative and canny Stan Carlyle starts working at a travelling carnival as a psychic medium, performing amongst a variety of other deranged acts, and he uses a variety of tricks and colludes with other performers to deceive audiences with feats of mind-reading in quotation marks and so on. He does slowly climb his way up society, but things inevitably get darker and more twisted and spiral into a downfall. So that's kind of the log line of what we're looking at with Nightmare Alley, another creepy, crawly, dark, twisted tale from Del Toro with quite a cast on it as well. So I'm very keen to hear, Rob, if it pulls off this premise, which to me sounds like something nice to sink your teeth into. Yes, with an emphasis upon teeth. (laughs) Yeah, the story of this film, it goes way back. And, by the way, they had an interruption during the filming Mm -hmm. of it because of COVID. So they had to lock it all down. Actually, I don't know if they did actually have to lock it down. And it wasn't compulsory or anything at that stage, but they did anyway. And we're glad of it because they spent six months editing what footage they'd shot. Mm -hmm. 
and it enabled them to sharpen things up so when they came back to finish it off, they had a whole different take on it. Yep. For every cloud, there's a silver lining, except in Noir where, you know, <laughs> there's just another cloud. <laughs> exactly, and some shadows across the face. <laughs> or a clown in this case because it is set partially in a carnival, a travelling mm-hmm. circus, mm-hmm. with its own nightmare alley, which is to say the sideshow alley or the freak show where they've got lots of different acts. Mm-hmm. And as you heard at the very start of the show, just before we rolled our theme, we had a bit from an album, Carnival Barkers, basically. And that was actually an original piece of sound archive of somebody shilling a freak show, a geek Mm -hmm. show, Mm -hmm. which is to say a character who bites the heads off live chickens, which is the original word, its meaning. We haven't done that on Zero G for ages. No animals are harmed in the production of this show. It was this sort of thing that reminded me of the vast, terrifyingly huge mm. history of dodgy circuses. Yes. And carnivals and even merry-go-rounds, when you think about it. Oh, yeah. Think in fiction that's vaguely related to clowns and circuses and carnivals mm-hmm. always has a dark side somewhere. Yep. You know, it's such a massive trope. And we've been through this before and done huge listings of them. And, you know, I mean, everybody from Stephen King mm-hmm. to Todd Browning with that movie Freaks, the old black and white movie, from the 30s too, I think, from memory. All, that trope has echoed on throughout red-nosed and floppy-shoed eternity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sad in a way because if you happen to work in those industries yeah you've got this vast luggage of isn't it awful isn't it evil to overcome before you even make somebody laugh although on the other side of that if you think about it that may be a good thing it draws them in because everyone likes a little bit of evil (laughs) i mean there's a long history of exploitation as well and i think you know lots to Mm. dig into around the darker side of those kinds of industries for sure i think and you know especially also when animals come into play as well i think even when i was a kid circuses still had traveling wild exotic animals that would travel around too yeah but you're right i think there's such a good opening for like exploring that darkness and in culture and art and making super creepy awful body horror goodness knows what supernatural explorations of yeah the creepy spooky carnival or the psycho clown or whatever and as you know, Psycho Clown's very much my wheelhouse. So, When I was doing some research for this, I, I didn't really want to do yet another list of dodgy carnivals and circuses because we've been through that so often. It reminded me that there's even one in Sailor Moon, <laughs> the Dead Moon Circus. Of course, the Dark yeah. Moon Circus. <laughs> A fun-loving, evil alien organisation of clown-like people and maniac monsters residing in their seemingly fun namesake circus tent. <laughs> I mean, anime can get dark, can't it? <laughs> indeed. All right, well, speaking of creepy carnivals, back in, uh, what were we talking about, early 2000s, mm-hmm. uh, there was uh, Daniel Nauf's Carnivale TV series, which was set in a travelling show in the Great Depression in the 1930s, in the Dust Bowl, just to make things even grottier. And in a lot of ways, I could see the carnival in this Nightmare Alley coming straight out of that. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's even got a similar plot in some respects. And 
it didn't run for as long as it might have. They set out to do it for six seasons and ended up doing it for about uh, one and an abbreviated season. Mm-hmm. It was one of those high-concept HBO shows, you know, where they pour huge amounts of money into it and then it just doesn't grab the audience. I loved it. It was like, what's the expression that I've heard about it? If you thought that David Lynch's Twin Peaks was too accessible, this is the show for you. <laughs> right. I can kind of see why maybe you didn't find an audience, but, I mean, sounds intriguing. Got me. <laughs> so we will play you a track from that, the main title theme from Carnivale. Hi there, I'm Jen Soska. And I'm Sylvia Soska. And, and we're the Twisted Twins. And you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. Did you love it? This is good for you too. Heck yeah. Ah, I hope you've got your tickets to the Carnivale. <laughs> and I think they just called it that just because it sounded good. Yeah. The flourish <laughs> at the like, end. Jeff Beale on the soundtrack album for that magnificently surreal and confusing show <laughs> the early 2000s. But we are talking about the darksome wickedness of Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. And I was looking at the original authors, William Lindsay Gresham's back catalogue. Mm-hmm. So this is like, you know, back in the early part of the 20th century. Look him up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Got to say, his life, I have never seen a movie where the author's life, even some biopics, is mirrored so perfectly <laughs> in the screenplay. You've got alcoholism, adultery, spiritualism, flirtation with Scientology, <sighs> interest in carnivals and sideshows. He went off to fight in the Spanish Civil War, did our William Lindsay Gresham. Divorces, uh, all sorts of things. Because he was fascinated by spiritualism and he was into uh, exposing fraudulent spiritualism, which, of course, is all of spiritualism, so he's got several different books upon the subject that he put out, and I read one of them, a non-fiction book called Midway Monsters. Oh. Yeah. If I may quickly quote from the Midway Monsters, like other skeptics, I once made the mistake of underrating the cold readers. For two decades, I was fascinated by the gimmicks of occult fakery, but overlooked the readers as nothing but slick gab artists. When one finally came to dig into their craft, I was astounded at how much applied psychology goes into the work of the top bracket professionals, Mm -hmm. many of whom have come up from the midway. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he really delved into it, and that is actually something that comes into play within the film. Mm. The procedural of it Mm. is really well explored, and in the 1947 original film Mm. too. I thought that was so important to get right and they certainly did in both of those films, original and the new one. You will also find that he wrote books about bodybuilding, and there is a circus strongman in this film. And, you know, so I just thought, wow, 
delve into this guy's stuff. It's all a bit suspect <laughs> as well, but nevertheless, to have the origins of this film laid quite bare mm. in these other books of the author, I thought was amazing. I think it's such an interesting area to explore, and it's kind of nice to know that he's done a bit of exploration in that area himself, like the, the fake science of it, but the fact that it's rooted in probably very real psychological science, like you mentioned, I think there's a very a real art to this high-level bakery and getting people to, you know, manipulating people as well as, you know, all the usual charisma and so on tricks that people need to be a good magician or grifter or con man. It's a very interesting source material for sure. Mm. And in the film, it's wrapped up with, well, they call it mentalism. That's the act. Mm -hmm. If you veer over into using it to deal with spiritual problems, you know, with ghosts and uh, reincarnation and all that sort of stuff. They call it a spook act, Mm. you know, which is they're not really supposed to be doing that because it's dangerous and probably quite difficult to deal with in a small town if you've got your your, uh, circus stuck there at the whim of the local sheriff, for example. You don't really want to make too many waves while you're there. But if you go elsewhere in a big town, well, you can make really big waves. You can make tsunamis Mm. and problems for people. Anyway, the idea of that also coincides with the, well, I won't call it quite the budding era of psycho analysis, but, you know, 1940s. So, you know, while you've got this cold reading mentalist act going, in the film there's also a parallel strand about the science of psychology. Mm. So I read this film as kind of a, well, as a pitch between the two forms, Mm. between science and spiritualism. And I thought that was a quite interesting take on it because when you look at it that way, then you see the main character, Stanton, Mm. played by Bradley Cooper, Mm. as being in conflict, Mm. direct conflict with the psychiatrist played by Kate Blanchett. Looking fabulous as always. (laughs) The psychiatrist's name is, get this, a dodgy female psychiatrist, a scary one, and her name is Lilith. (laughs) No accident, I'm sure. (laughs) It might be. No one has been able to tie the popular character in Frasier to this one, but I would have to say, but then again, Lilith is a demon's name, so, you know, who knows? (laughs) Same inspiration, you know, travelling in the same directions. All right, the earlier 1947 version is directed by Edmund Golding, And it was basically a vehicle for Tyrone Power. He was a swashbuckling action star and wanted to do a bit more serious work. And so he does in this. He's really good in this. Yeah. Great range of acting throughout this. Uh, Joan Blondell is in it playing the carnival psychic, uh, Madame Zena, the fortune teller. And Helen Walker plays Lilith. Colleen Gray plays Molly, the electro girl from the show. So it was actually not all well received back in the day, but later on became a bit of a cult hit. It's actually quite well budgeted for a noir film, Mm -hmm. and I liked it. It's got a cult following nowadays, Mm -hmm. and I saw that on the Internet Archive. Mm -hmm. 
So as we said, it's also available streaming too. Mm. So on other on uh, Apple Plus. Yes, you can so, rent it from there. And this is the original, the first adaptation of Nightmare Alley. Black and white, yeah? yeah. Well, yes. Uh, it has the advantage of being an actual in-period <laughs> film noir. So, you know, an um, authenticity so tick of, there. Absolutely. And the funny thing is, because it's in the 1940s, you've got a bit of, you've got a sort of um, Art Deco aesthetic running in the style. Nice. Um, but it's, Original to that time. It's not retro or anything. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Just the style of the day. And comparing and contrasting it to Del Toro's, that's actually more Art Deco. <laughs> they push that big lever. Yeah. That you do on the electric machine on the stage right down to the stops in terms of design. There are differences in the, the way the story is handled. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not so explicit. You know, you don't ever see any chickens having their heads bit off. Not in the forties, no. CGI chickens, or no, or CGI chickens. Although, if you go far far enough back in uh, Hollywood, you do start to get really quite explicit stuff. But you know, the Hayes Code and all that sort of stuff is, yeah. is running along. Yeah, this is peak this. PG territory about the forties, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, in that, there is some minor differences which I won't go into because I don't want to give away too much of the the plot. Some things happen in it accidentally rather than deliberately. I see. So. And the spiral down, as you were describing it earlier on, is a little bit differently paced and motivated. Okay. And, yep. you know, so there are, there are differences and they do actually give you a little bit of a hint of a happy ending. Oh. Or at least or at least a less bleak ending. <laughs> than, and, you know, this is not giving anything away in a, in a noir film that Del Toro gets his hands on. Yeah. You know it's not going to be... Happy campers at the end. No, and I would, I would expect not. I would sort of put my money down on some kind of twist and some kind of bleak ending. That's what I've come to expect from from the guy. Mm-hmm. So one of the things about Del Toro's Nightmare Alley that I particularly like. I mean, before we get to the actors and so on, <laughs> just throwing those away. Apart from the amazingly detailed and atmospheric sets, and I was so tempted to turn the colour off mm. while I was watching this. And one day I will do that because I know you can see that Del Toro and his cinematographer have lit this to look like a noir film. In fact, they've gone way over the top when it comes to depicting light and shadow. <laughs> I mean, it's almost in uh, Frank Miller territory, you know. Well, the, and, the colour palette is really what, like quite monochrome anyway, right? So it's practically, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's one scene in a car where... Uh, Molly, the electro woman, is wearing a red dress. Everything else looks like it's in black and white. Yeah, yeah. Del Toro is doing a lot of perspective shots in this. Oh. Yeah, down nightmare alleys, Mm -hmm. down sideshow rows, roads, mazes, hedges. Yeah. Corridors. He loves corridors in this. Mm. and I suspect he's conjuring up, it's a little bit like vertigo, you know, like a character always running down these endless streets and corridors. Mm. That's what I felt like anyway. It's got a pretty good soundtrack too. Uh, not as noir original as the 47 one, of course. Yeah, right. It feels like it's in that sort of style. Mm. We do have that. Here and look, it's all ominous stuff and tense, <laughs> psychological, tense. edge of your seat, don't relax for a minute kind of vibe. 
Yeah. And there's a, a piano solo here, the theme from Nightmare Alley, from the soundtrack. Nathan Johnson is the composer. And, you know, it's like, yeah, let's play this upon your nerves. <laughs> <laughs> This is George Romero, and I wouldn't be caught dead listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. <laughs> what did I say? You can see the flickering neon filter through the dusty, busted Venetian blinds and strobing across the cracked, dirty whiskey glass with a cigarette stubbed out in it. <laughs> when you listen to the main title theme of <laughs> Nightmare Alley, the new version, that is, and that's by Nathan Johnson there. <laughs> I, I would have expected that to come out as a jazz solo or something like that, but uh, in this case it was a piano a, and they did a pretty good job of it. A sombre piece. Now, so we are talking about Nightmare Alley by Guillermo del Toro, and in the past he's not shied away from some more gruesome scenes, and now it's not 1940s anymore, so I'm curious, you know, what's the tone of this? Is it kind of noir but and a bit thrilling intense, or is it, does it have some gruesome elements as I've kind of been taught to expect that he deploys with good sense, but some of his stuff can be quite graphic. So what are we talking for this one? Yes. <laughs> gruesome. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There is some elements in this that are done with unflinching brutality because that's pretty much what the situation called for mm. at the time. Yeah. Okay. On the behalf of the various murderous characters. <laughs> Which is interesting, you know, 1947, they'd just been through World War Two, mm. you know, and this uh, story is set in 1941. They very definitively nail it down where we are in, in time. And, yeah, it is a violent film in parts. Mm -hmm. That said, there's a lot of psychological horror in it. And I use the term specifically because there is a, a psychiatrist in this who is a typical noir femme fatale and, you know, she does things that uh, would probably get her thrown off the board. <laughs> well, it's early days of psychoanalysis. Anything goes at that, at that time. They actually have a, uh, a lie detector in this film too, a polygraph at one stage, and I'm thinking, gosh, this is so um, Wonder Woman-ish. Mm -hmm. uh, Wonder Woman's creator was involved with that sort of thing. Anyway, let's go to some of the actors yes. in this. The The star of the show is Bradley Cooper. Yes, and apparently it was a project that he was quite passionate about. He really connected on the oh. material with Del Toro and kind of had a lot of thoughts himself on some of the themes and uh, such that could be explored as part of the film. And from what I've seen, he runs around looking very sweaty and tortured for the whole time. How does he hold up as our centrepiece grifter? Well, he is just as good as Tyrone Power. Mm -hmm. Power has the physicality, you mm -hmm. know, based upon all of his swashbuckling days. Like at one stage, Power picks up a, a plank and waves it around and you can just see him, you know, in the black swan or something, <laughs> holding a, a cutlass and that kind of thing. But Cooper does a pretty good job of this and he really gives you the feeling of someone who's on the make. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He segues from slick, smooth con man but who's quite charming yep. to suddenly 
becoming fairly evil but still managing to smile about it and be amiable. Yeah. There's something dead behind his eyes in, in this film. <laughs> You know, and I think this is one of the best performances he's put in. He's done quite a few good ones. Mm, mm. Okay, he's not playing a raccoon in this one. <laughs> different, but, yeah. Di- very different kind of role for him in that way. As opposed to the 1947 film, we get to see the background of the character in this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a lot more to grab onto in his initial stages. The 40s film jumps straight into his time in the carnival. Mm. There's no backstory, but here we get a bit of that. And so just to give away the very first scene, it starts with him, his character dragging a body across a floor. Ah. And you can't get a better start to a noir film than that. He's also playing the character as a bit of an artist. Mm -hmm. He's a a tinkerer and inventor. Mm -hmm. He's actually quite good at building props or at least convincing other people to make them for him. And behind that engaging smile is a feeling that this performance could actually be done by another Marvel actor. I was thinking that Chris Evans could also have done this quite well. Oh, yeah. Okay. If you remember his performance in Knives Out, yeah, I think he, he would nail that, this. That dead behind the eyes but very charming but capable of, you know, who knows what. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great role for him, and I just think Bradley is perfect for this role. I'm really happy to see him doing more roles like this. I think that, you know, obviously he got his start in comedy and so on, and he's been he's had a lot of success in the Marvel franchise, and he has done some more serious quote-unquote roles. But it sounds like him as a leading man in something that's a bit edgy and a little bit strange, I'm definitely keen to see. He obviously can, and I'd love to see him mm. do more. Mm. Yeah, a bit like the Matthew McConaughey, Adam Sandler effect. We underestimate some of these guys and then they pull out some pretty great performances. Yeah, Michael Keaton. True, yeah, very true. Sort of thing. In fact, I could see, there's a whole bunch of comic actors I could see doing this one. Yeah. You know, uh, like Cary Grant in his earlier films well, and, and indeed some of the later ones, he could actually have a surprising turn of nastiness, you know. There's that element of showmanship and then with the edge, mm. you know, like, and I think sometimes yeah. they get to a point where they want to play that edge. So, yeah, it sounds like mm. it was a meaty, meaty role. Yes, in many respects. <laughs> <laughs> so he's great and he has great chemistry with all of the other actors mm. too. So that's built into the into the script, but also the, the, the way he plays it. Kate Blanchett plays Lilith Ritter, Dr. Mm-hmm. Lilith Ritter, as she reminds us several times. Yep. And she is the archetypal ice goddess mm-hmm. in this, you know, platinum blonde, the whole thing. She's got the, the noir poses down pat. Uh, she delivers the innuendo without blinking basically it is just perfect it's a joy to watch and they give her the best costumes and sets to just let it all rip you know she's great very believable in this and i actually think she plays it more knowingly than the original noir Mm. actress did on the other hand i Really don't want to cast any shade upon them because I really like the uh, the original one too, the 1947 one. Mm. Tony Collette, always love to see Tony Collette. Ah, so great. She plays Madame Zena, the fortune teller, mm-hmm. and she has this interesting double act where she has to look after a a drunken fellow performer. They were. Once it, you know, yeah. they were the the, to- the headline act mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, until 
alcohol entered the picture yeah. and it all went wrong. You know, there was all sorts of problems that they had. And, of course, as a fortune teller, she can use her tarot cards to, you know, lead us into various dark alleys that, and to signpost what's going to happen to us when we step off the pavement. Oh, and the original book, the ch- each chapter was themed for a different tarot card. So that's obviously yes. – that's very nice, very nice touch. Anyway, Tony Collette brings a lot to this. Mm-hmm. And not entirely long-term role in the film, mm. but one that you want to see someone solid playing the role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Safe and pair of hands. I, yeah, absolutely. And Richard Jenkins is in this too, playing a, a rich character later on in the film. Mm-hmm. He's always playing these sorts of side characters. Uh, he's in Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard's The Cabin in the Woods mm-hmm. and in uh, Kong Skull Island. Always fun to see him pop up yeah. but of course he was in uh, the shape of water yeah yeah so you know he's another one who's been dragged along there's also the actor who plays klaus ashford in the expanse the pirate captain oh and that's yeah david strand and he plays pete the drunk and he's one of the prime mentalists but he's the guy who uh, fell by oh, the way and tony collets yeah yeah yeah, I'm yeah. I'm curious about Rooney Mara in this because she I see she's playing a role Molly and it's the electric girl. Yeah, yeah. right. I think because I quite like her. She often does play as always the same kind of fragile character. How is she in this? Exactly what you said. <laughs> yeah, but except she does find strength. Okay. Okay. In the story, it's important to look at noir films where women do feature mm. because. This is a thing, Mm. you know, they're not just playing side characters. And she is very much a person who grows through this film. I'm not quite sure what Kate Blanchett does. It's, (laughs) but you know, these characters, they have power and agency and strength in the film. And she does. And she fits the bill quite well. I could see her walking off the set of Carnivale very easily, (laughs) you know. A shout out to a favourite actor who we've seen in Supernatural, who's also in Nightmare Alley, Uh, Jim Beaver, yeah, Idjit. He's playing a sheriff in this. It's a delight to see him on screen once again. Oh, and somebody else, Ron Perlman. Of course. Another key collaborator of Del Toro's. (laughs) He plays the strong man in this. Oh, great. Surprisingly, he doesn't play the geek or the wild man or anything like that. He's a strong man, but he's got shot knees. Oh. So what we see in this film, as I said, the the procedural is strong in this. You see them come off stage, mm-hmm. backstage, you know. So there's a whole I like that. layer yeah. of film to this. Yeah. yeah. Now, he, he thinks he's um, Molly's protector because he knew her dad. Right. Okay. So, so we've got different yeah. some different dynamics at play there. I do want to shout out to Mary Steenburgen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Back to the Future. She's yeah. Uh, she did a surprising thing in this film that just blew me away. She's fantastic. Thinking, <laughs> only Del Toro would get her to play this particular role. She yeah. It's like when he's you know casting films, he might have someone ring an actor up and go, "Oh, would you like to be in my film?" And they go. <laughs> Well, yes, why? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What role will I play? Well, it's only a temporary job. <laughs> uh, another actor who you may know if you've watched Peaky Blinders is Paul Anderson. Huh. He actually plays the geek. Oh, <laughs> the chicken biter. 
Yeah, totally unrecognisable, but he was Arthur Shelby Jr. in Peaky Blinders and uh, Sebastian Moran in Sherlock Holmes, The Game of Shadows. I don't know why that would have been attractive to watch, that act, but, I mean, who knows? People are funny. (laughs) Well, they actually explain that in, uh, I can't remember if it was in this one or the early one, it's people like to see people more unfortunate than themselves. Uh, you know, and in the depression, that was kind of difficult. So they had to go to extremes. Yeah. Crikey! Oh, also, just as a cameo, uh, Romina Power, who's daughter of actor Tyrone Power, she gets a, a little shot where she is one of the audience oh. watching one of Bradley Cooper's characters' nice. shows. That's a nice touch. Yeah, I just sort of, must have been like, oh my gosh, we'll hunt her down, <laughs> <laughs> track her down, and drag her into the proceedings. Look, I enjoyed this film. In inverted commas, because, you know, the design is great. The costumes are great. The music is spot on. The characters are all there. It's a little weird in terms of how it all fits together, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. that's okay. It's noir. Mm. You know, there's lots of noir films where the pieces don't quite fall into place. Yeah, 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 sure. It it works. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. It isn't as religiously steeped as the 47 one, mm-hmm. which makes a point of going out of the way to talk up God. Gotcha, you know. right, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't manifest much in Del Toro's. I'd say that would have been a studio thing too back in the day. They're like, well, sure, you can do talk about these things, but we also want to have some of pro-religious stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I am actually dying to go back and watch this in black and white because I think it'll be Dig up the great black to and see white that. one, yeah. I mean, maybe wait a bit to recover before you delve right back into that world because it sounds like it was a bit of a dreary one. It is. <laughs> this may not have gone well during the pandemic, and that's a good reason why it might not have. Mm. But, look, as a genre of film, this makes perfect sense. I'm happy with it. <laughs> if the word happy applies, which it does not. <laughs> it also reminds me of pulp magazines and pulp comics. Yeah. You know, you get these uh, crime thriller books and there would be a last panel yeah. that leaps off the page to you where you get the horrific revelation. And although you can kind of see it coming, mm. that's all right because sometimes they earn that yeah. and it helps to give that little frisson yeah. of horror and you go, okay. oh, I know where this is going. No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I had a lot of evil, wicked fun with Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, <laughs> which you can see on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right next to Turning Red and, you know, all the new Disney's Marvel just uh, tucked in there. Nightmare Alley. <laughs> Disney Plus is to Disney like Millie Cyrus is to Hannah Montana. <laughs> Does that make sense? I think so. <laughs> I think so, too. All right. Okay. So let's have a track now from the Ms. Marvel mm. television series. And it's just one called Blinding Lights. And it's um, in the series, The Weekend, uh, the creators of this. And it's from an album called After Hours. How long have we been receiving these mysterious signals from outer space? People of Earth, attention. 
This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. Hi, I'm Steve Squires. I worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers, Voyager, Magellan, and Cassini space missions, and I wrote the book Roving Mars. So if anyone should understand Zero-G, think it would be me. Nah, sorry. Zero-G, science fiction and fantasy radio on 3 Triple R FM. was Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. And we played that because we thought we'd just wrap today's episode by giving our quick first impressions on Ms. Marvel, the latest and greatest in the Marvel TV drops that are happening on Disney+. Plus. So this one has two episodes out. There will be six episodes in the season and they're dropping weekly, of course. Uh, and you can catch those on Disney+, Plus, as previously <laughs> declared in today's Disney+, Plus themed episode. This one was created by Bisha K. Ali, based on the comics, which I know you loved, Rob. Uh, follow along with Ms. Marvel, also known as Kamala Khan. We've got uh, Adil El Arbi and Bilal Fala, who lead up the directing team for this. And it is largely going to be a setup, and this is no spoiler, for the film The Marvels, which is slated to come out next year. So first impressions, we've got Iman Vellani as Kamala Khan, and she brings heaps of energy and verve to the role. So key part of Kamala Khan as a character, she's Pakistani. She's also Muslim, and she lives in Jersey City. And this is kind of a bit of her coming-of-age story, city city teen sitcom vibe. Very much we're in solid comedy territory here. We've got a lot of quick cuts. It's quite frenetic pace, bit of voiceover. We're really just getting into the head of this young girl who's fighting between her family loyalty and uh, staying true to her roots and culture and also struggling a little bit with wanting to break out and pursue things like her fandom of the Avengers and um, living up to both her own expectations as well as finding out who she is. So, yeah, I've watched only the first one so far, but I am interested to see where this will go. It's Definitely pitched at a younger audience, and I think we're trying to capture a younger audience here because it's not just the character, the style and some of the touches of the way things are done and the incorporation of animation, I think, are very strongly pitching it younger. But I enjoyed it so far. I'm not too sure yet, though. Rob, what about you? Well, as a, I was going to say, a long-term Ms. Marvel fan, <laughs> but it, it has she hasn't been around that long. Mm. I loved it. It's note-perfect. I could not imagine a closer realisation, with the exception of the fact that her powers are differently based than they are in the comic books. Yep, yep. In the comic books, she is an inhuman, with all that that implies in the MCU mm-hmm. and the television shows and the comic books and so on. Yep. But in, in this, they've gone a different direction. I respect why they've done it, mm-hmm. and it works quite well. Yeah. But I don't think that I would make any changes to this at all. It's actually like jumped right out of the pages of the comic book. And, in fact, they incorporate pages from the comic books in the graffiti in the street. Yeah. I think the real artistic flair here is going to be what is going to set it apart. And her, like, Lani's acting as Kamala Khan, I think, as well. She's such a great centrepiece. So I think it'll depend on where the plot goes for me. So, yeah, looking forward to keeping up with that one. On Disney+, Plus. that is Ms. Marvel. Yes, yes. We will do a deeper dive into that. We will embiggen our comments when we get to that, perhaps next week. I don't know yet. All right, well, that's about it for Zero G for today. 
would like to thank our podcaster, Kayla. Mm-hmm. And Joe Brunatic is coming up next with Astral Glamour. And I think we will go out with another track from Ms. Marvel. Like a lot of the Marvel shows, they're really spot on with their cultural palette when it comes to music. And in this case, <laughs> I will tell you that this song actually comes from another film, from a, a Tamil film, and it's Oh Nanba. And this is a, a thriller action movie, so, you know, Oh Nanba by S.P. Balasubramaniam and Ayan Dinesh Kanagaratnam from the soundtrack of the 2014 action film Linga, but in context of Ms. Marvel, played in the first episode. Ms. Marvel. M. Biggin. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.